Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Biden calling on Congress to pass a bill averting a rail shutdown, and we could see action as early as this week. Today on the show, the union-built offshore wind industry, and we check in with the operating engineers in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to the Tuesday, November 29th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. We have two guests on the show today, both newcomers to America's Workforce. We appreciate that. It's always nice to hear new voices for the American labor movement. Today, we're going to start things off with Will Cotta. Now, Will is a supply chain manager for Ocean Winds North America, working on the Mayflower Wind and Blue Point Wind projects. This is a really big deal. Website is uh, mayflowerwind.com, and uh, this is a developer of an offshore wind energy lease area located off the coast of Massachusetts, and they recently announced signing a Memorandum of Understanding with North America's Building Trades Unions and the United Brotherhood of Carpenters. This is regarding the offshore and onshore construction work for its 1,200-megawatt South Coast project. The MOU includes commitments to create jobs for local and diverse workers and to comply with the labor requirements of the Inflation Reduction Act. And that includes paying prevailing wages and using apprentices. Comment here from Michael Brown. Michael is the CEO of Mayflower Wind. He said, a talented, well-trained, and unionized workforce will be instrumental in helping to safely build our South Coast project. Keyword, safely build. And we look forward to working with the building trades to create clean energy jobs for workers in Massachusetts, as well as Rhode Island. Pretty big area there. Sean McGarvey was also part of this uh, recent press conference. Sean, of course, president of the Building Trades Unions, and he said the benefits created for working people when industry and labor work collaboratively are enormous. We look forward to becoming an important partner on the Mayflower Wind South Coast project to help build a vibrant and sustainable offshore wind industry. The head of the Massachusetts Building Trades, Frank Callahan, said the highly trained men and women of the Massachusetts building trades are the most qualified workforce to perform the onshore and offshore work on the Mayflower Wind South Coast project. So we're going to take a deep dive into uh, how many jobs this is going to create, how labor unions actually provide the expertise and know-how to build the offshore wind workforce in the United States. Why working with local unions is important to the offshore wind industry. How unions across the country can work with the offshore wind industry. Growing industry includes East Coast, West Coast, 
Lots of work over many decades. And uh, we just talked about this recently in the state of Minnesota. Minnesota's got a lot going on with wind. Mayflowerwind.com for uh, more information. Very excited to uh, talk to Will Cotta. T.J. Dick will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the operating engineers. This would be a local 571. They're based in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, we're going to talk about organizing, growing the union, the value of a defined benefit plan versus a 401k. There's a lot of people that still don't understand that. There's uh, simply two kind of pensions in America. Defined benefit means you get a certain amount of money each and every month for the rest of your life. And those were extremely popular. Until the 401ks came. Now, the 401ks are defined contribution. And I don't know what the average is. There was a time not long ago that people had $25,000, $30,000 in their 401k. That has since increased. But even if it doubled, think about this. How long will that carry you through retirement? I mean, <laughs> it's a joke. It really is a joke. And uh, there is a pension crisis. You know, half of Americans do not have a pension. 50% do not have a pension. They just rely on Social Security. Pretty sad. Pretty sad. We'll get into training as well. T.J. Dick, who serves as a business agent, vice president, and organizing director. Man wears uh, many hats in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, on behalf of the uh, International Union of Operating Engineers. You know, we uh, spoke with uh, Local 49 yesterday on the show, Jason George. And if you missed that show, do check it out awfpodcast.com. It was a great story because Jason, um, he came from some pretty humble beginnings. And in the second segment, we talked about his growing up with a single mom working paycheck to paycheck and how he found his way to the uh, operating engineers. And now he's business agent and financial secretary. Just a cool story of how somebody came from virtually nothing to what he is today. And that union has over 14,000 members. All right, that's a Local 49, by the way, and they're based in uh, St. Paul. And now let's take a look into the world of labor, brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. Good folks there. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Well, yesterday, President Biden called on Congress to pass legislation to avert a rail shutdown. And some leaders say they could act as soon as as this week, I'm calling on Congress to pass legislation immediately to adopt the tentative agreement between railroad workers and operators without any modifications or delay to avert a potentially crippling national rail shutdown, Biden said in a statement. He went on claiming this agreement was approved by labor and management negotiators back in September. On the day that it was announced, labor leaders, business leaders, and elected officials all hailed it as a fair resolution of the dispute between the hardworking men and women of the rail freight unions and the companies in that industry. Since that time, the majority of the unions in the industry have voted to approve the deal. And keep in mind, there's 12 unions. A majority did vote, but some of the big ones said no. Now, a rail strike could become a reality as early as next Friday. That would be December 9th, which would cause shortages, spike prices, and also halt factory production. It could also disrupt 
commuter rail services for up to 7 million travelers a day and the transportation of 6,300 carloads of food and farm products a day, among other items. Additionally, a freight rail strike could cost the U.S. economy $1 billion in the first week. Now, while the railroads say they're hopeful of reaching new deals, they have so far rejected the demands that union negotiators say their members want. A previous strike threat in September risked causing greater problems with goods slated for holiday sales, but that strike was averted. The strike threat was averted in an 11th-hour tentative labor deal. Nancy Pelosi, current leader of the House, said yesterday the House will take this up later this week and consider legislation adopting the tentative agreement reached in September. Now, following House passage, the Senate has to jump in, and they are expected to have the votes to break a filibuster on the bill to avert a potential rail strike, according to sources. There are likely to be at least 10 Republicans who will vote with most Senate Democrats to overcome a 60-vote threshold. Now, the only question is how quickly the bill can come to the floor since any senator can object, dragging out the process and delaying a quick vote. Sources are watching Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders closely to see if he upends an effort to get a quick vote. Now, let me pick up a little bit here on Bernie Sanders. You know Bernie Sanders is 100% working class, and he is clearly, clearly on the side of the workers here. And the workers have made several demands that they got to change their policy when it comes to uh, taking some time off. Because right now, if they take some time off, they are docked. And if they're docked too many times, they can lose their job. And as a result, a lot of people are not wanting to work for the rail industry. We had a really good conversation about this yesterday with Greg Regan on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO because the rail industry, let's see, over the last five to six years, they lost over 40,000 workers, and the pandemic made it even worse. They only hired about 10% of those workers back, so they're like 30% down. And I asked Greg, okay, why can't they get more people? And it's because a lot of the people don't want to work there due to their policies. So this is one to watch. But right now the White House is saying we have to honor the agreement that Marty Walsh carved out back in September. We'll see what happens here in the next couple of days. At least a dozen auto workers employed by Rivian Automotive, Inc., filed complaints with federal regulators detailing safety violations at the Illinois production facility. The complaints allege that the electric vehicle manufacturer ignored hazards and deprioritized safety resources, leaving some workers to share respirators needed during the manufacturing process and others to injury, including a crushed hand, a broken foot, a sliced ear, and broken ribs. According to the analysis, the filings depict an automaker that pretty much cut corners as it scaled rapidly to keep pace in the competitive electric vehicle space. In statements to Bloomberg News, a Rivian spokesperson disputed all of the workers' allegations. Well, (laughs) that's really pretty easy to prove. 
that they have a crushed hand, a broken foot, a sliced ear, and broken ribs, especially when they're coming off the assembly line. I've heard a lot about this company, Rivian. It sounds like a work at an Amazon warehouse. I don't know. Temporary staffing agencies operating in New Jersey have ramped up lobbying efforts to stop a temp worker protection bill from passing in the state Senate. The staffing agencies are lobbying hard against the bill. Why? Well, because it would ban temp agencies from making paycheck deductions, unitemized paycheck deductions that lower workers pay below minimum wage. The bill would also require temp agencies to compensate workers who are taken to job sites but sent home without work to pay their workers the same as permanent employees at a work site and to tell workers where they're going to work and how much they will get paid. In other words, it's being upfront with the workers. Here's what you're going to do today. And um, this is what you're going to get paid. Well, apparently they don't like that situation. This legislation, this is a quote. This legislation doesn't push the envelope. These are very basic working protections. I mean, who would ever think that wage theft needed to be legislated, said Eric Richard, the legislative director for the New Jersey State AFL-CIO, which supports the bill. Eric went on to say this is another model by which some employers seek to increase their bottom line on the backs of workers. So that's definitely one to watch there. And one more here before we break. Newly organized beer, wine, and liquor workers at Penske Logistics. This is in Tuckwilla, Washington, just outside Seattle. They have ratified their first contract with Teamsters Local 174, guaranteeing protections to improve their lives on and off the job. How about that? The contract covers nearly 100 delivery drivers and warehouse workers responsible for storing and delivering product for Republic National Distributing Company, a national beer and liquor distributor that hired Penske as a third-party logistics company in that area. The new contract will raise the floor in this very heavily unionized industry, protecting workers from exploitation and guaranteeing a secure future so hats off to uh, teamsters local 174 in the seattle area all right quick break when we come back we're going to talk all about offshore wind you're listening to america's workforce with ed flash ferens it takes liuna to build north america's infrastructure From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, LIUNA members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by LIUNA at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The the United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. 
Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. Now... Back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to the East Coast right now. Joining us from Rhode Island today is Mr. Will Cotta. Will is the supply chain manager for Ocean Winds North America. And he's working on the Mayflower Wind and Blue Point Wind projects. This is a big deal. And uh, you got to salute the building trades and the carpenters for being involved in this. And this is going to create a whole lot of jobs. And Will is in the center of it all. Will Cotta, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So, Will, before we get started here, talk to me about your uh, background. You served in the Coast Guard and also, let's see, you're a trained engineer. Can you speak about that part first and how you uh, found your way to the uh, Mayflower Wind Project. Go ahead. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's kind of a um, an interesting path. Um, with any new injured industry, I think, you see people they take different paths to get into it. And so um, for, for me, I'm, a, I'm an engineer by training. I went to the Coast Guard Academy. I studied naval architecture and marine engineering. So that's ship design, construction, repair, which is a really good background to kind of you think about a ship, it, it's all of the different systems integrated, whether it's electrical, mechanical, um, and even the design of uh, the, the vessel. So it's really a, a whole city that has to float out at sea in 35-foot waves and you know 100-mile-an-hour winds. Um, from there, I spent a, a couple of years in Boston on a ship, actually afloat, um, which is definitely a different experience than designing them. It's, it's actually being out there, being tossed around by the waves. Um, and from there, I went to uh, MIT, where I studied mechanical engineering, but actually worked in an electrical engineering lab. So kind of that interface where mechanical energy becomes electrical energy and back, um, which is a really good background for understanding wind energy, just because that's where um, basically a wind turbine is just a big motor. And the way we spin it is with the wind. Um, We generate those electrons and we send them to the grid. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my early part of my career Um, can go into more detail if you want on, where else I serve in the Coast Guard. That, that's okay. You, yeah, you know, you can stop at MIT. When you, when you say MIT on the show, you know, this guy's got to be a brain. I mean, that is one of the premier universities in America. So the, that's, that had to be an interesting time going there. And, uh, well, today let's talk about Mayflower Wind. And maybe you could explain this in a little more detail because I see it's a joint venture between Shell New Energies, US LLC, and Ocean Winds North America. Now, the shell we're talking about, that's shell oil, right? And and maybe you can explain what's going on in the fossil fuel industry here. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'll say, honestly, I don't I don't know much about the fossil fuel industry. I, when I was in the Coast Guard, I worked closely with them. But um, so Shell is an energy company at, at the end of the day, right? And so yeah. um, historically, they've been uh, an oil company and oil and gas because that's where the energy is. But I think when you look to the future, and, and that's where Shell's looking, 
there's a lot of push across different states for electrification and uh, and bringing renewables in. And so if you take a step back and say, you know, what it, what is Shell actually selling? It, I think it's energy. And so it actually really aligns well with um, the history of, of the company. And so the other piece of it, too, is when you look at where the U.S. has generated a lot of their their offshore energy, it's been from the, the Gulf of Mexico. These are really complex projects. You're building offshore platforms. And that's what we're doing in, in offshore wind is we're really going out to the not, not the middle of the ocean, um, but pretty far offshore and um, building wind turbines. And so you need the engineers who um, who understand how to build this stuff and have experience doing it. And so this is an example. We have one of our cable engineers is from Shell and um, he, he has a ton of experience. Everything you would ever want to know about laying a cable on a seabed, making sure a cable can um, you know survive offshore, all of that stuff. That's his background, and that's where his his core expertise is. So it's great that's to have that kind of experience. We're over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the picture you're painting here. What what we you know kind of references like oil platforms out out in the, say the Gulf Coast or maybe the uh, the Atlantic area. They're now they're now wind farms. I mean that's that's the changing environment here. You, when you say they're uh, they're far off the coast, what what kind of what what are we talking about? How many miles off coast typically are these wind farms? Yeah, so I'll I'll have to um, admit I did not do my homework on our map, but we're probably maybe twenty seven miles south of Martha's Vineyard. Um, so Martha's Vineyard's offshore, and then yeah, another twenty seven or so off of that. But I think when you look at it, most states are saying. Um, there's the Block Island wind farm, which is just a, a mile or so off of Block Island. That's the closest you'll ever probably see a wind farm in the U.S. again. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of solicitations are coming out from states, and they're saying, you know, we wanted at least 10 miles offshore. So that's kind of the minimum. But at the end of the day, the federal government decides where the, the lease areas are where you can actually build. Um, and then we go out and we lease the lease area from, from the government and develop the project. Well, well, talk to me about this uh, this project here, the uh, the memorandum of understanding too that was a- accomplished between the North American Building Trades and the Brotherhood of Carpenters, which is really exciting, especially for us being a labor union show, because this means a whole lot of union jobs. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to well what we're going to see here and what stage that we're actually in with this project. Well, what, where are we right now? Yeah. So the way, I mean, fundamentally, when you think about offshore wind, there's a few things you need. Basically you need a lease area. You go to the government, you lease that. You need an offtake agreement or a customer. And so for Mayflower wind, our customer is Massachusetts. Um, we, through two solicitations are selling 1200 megawatts of power to, to the state of Massachusetts um, and their local electric utilities. Um, from there, you need your permit. And so we go through the federal, state, local permitting, everything like that. And then finally, you need your uh, supplier contract. So that's all of the different components, whether it's the turbines, the substations, everything like that. And then overlaid across all of those different suppliers is a workforce that is actually going to go out and, and build it. So we have, you know, a supplier is going to hand us a turbine that's partially constructed um, and we need people who can, you know, know how to turn a wrench, know how to turn a torque wrench, know how to connect cables. Um, and I think that's where the building trades really excels. And so we've seen the first project labor agreement here in Massachusetts, and that was with Vineyard Wind and the Mass Building Trades. They really took a, a leading uh, step forward and, and kind of built that model for the industry. And then our agreement's actually with the North American Building Trades. And so what that does is because we have a little portion of it in Rhode Island, 
the nationals basically came in and said, hey, like we will coordinate between and um, deconflict anything that's happening. It also gives a great opportunity for, you know, somebody works in a project in Massachusetts, they can take that expertise. And then if the next project being built is in New Jersey or New York, they can say, hey, we don't need somebody who's a foreign worker to come in. We already have a trained person who, you know, went through that, that whole process of building 100 turbines or whatever it is. And we can bring that in from Massachusetts rather than a foreign worker, which is, um, I think that's a great way to build a domestic industry. I see the carpenters are part of this. Can you explain their role in this, uh, this Mayflower Wind project? So there's really, if you think of the different unions involved in the construction of a wind farm, there's probably five core ones. So the, the laborers, the iron workers, the electricians, um, the operating engineers, and then the carpenters, mostly with the millwrights, the pile drivers. So our foundations are either usually monopiles, which is just a big, maybe up to 30-foot um, metal cylinder, just, just steel cylinder that we drive into the ground. So obviously a pile driver is a good, um, good trade for that experience. Uh, or a jack foundation where you have actually kind of pin piles, they call them. So it's really just a, a steel rod that they put in at the base. And once again, pile driving for that. The other side of it is um, the millwrights. So when you think of a wind turbine, it's basically a high RPM um, turbine. And so the millwrights have a lot of experience with setting up and aligning different turbines, gas turbines, everything like that. So what's your role in all of this? You're, you're the supply chain manager. Do you, do you pretty much make sure that they have everything that they need to construct these, uh, these uh, wind, wind farms? Yeah, so we have uh, we have a technical team and a procurement team, and then we have a supply chain manager. And so basically, the the technical team is the ones who really understand, you know, based on the ground conditions, what is it we need to build, and and how is our project gonna gonna work. The procurement team works closely with them to actually go out to suppliers and pick who we're gonna use. And then, if you think of the supply chain for for offshore wind, there's really there's kind of our manufacturers are gonna build in their factories. Um, which are right now overseas, but hopefully we'll start to see some some movement towards domestic factories. They have their own supply chain that they manage how they get their stuff. They then bring their components to a marshalling port. And so we have New Bedford, Massachusetts for us. Um, Some other projects that'll be in New York or New Jersey, um, they have ports there. And that's where we really manage that supply chain of what are the local businesses we're going to work with? What is the workforce that we're going to work with um, to really, you know, once we have those, those manufactured products, bring them into the construction site and then engage those local companies to actually build it um, and then bring it offshore and construct. Well, I don't know if you know the answer to this. You mentioned about uh, getting supplies from overseas. And and I know this administration is very, very adamant in buying American goods and services. And, and I know I, in, in many instances, they can't, they just can't do it because they're not here. Um, Do you see this changing because of the demand for these wind farms here in America? I don't know if you have any ratio on that as far as where they're manufactured overseas versus the ones that are over here. Do you know anything about that? So right now there's the the main components for a wind turbine, which is if you break down a turbine, you say the blades, there's a nacelle, which is really where the the gears, the the motor inside um, the generator is. And then the tower. The tower is the only piece that is going to be domestically manufactured. There's one in um, Albany, and they um, 
yeah, so there's one factory starting for that. The foundation, there's, there's one factory here in the U.S. But for the most part, we're still seeing the majority of the supply chain is overseas. I will say the Inflation Reduction Act is just a, an incredible piece of um, opportunity for this industry to, to really move forward. It provides the incentives, and it basically aligns labor and um, businesses to really move forward to build a domestic supply chain. So there is a lot of incentives to do that. And then we've seen different states take a, a big leadership position in saying, we want this constructed locally. We want it here in the U.S. Um, so hopefully in the next you know, year or two, we'll start to see some announcements of um, more, more U.S. factories. That's exactly what I wanted to hear, because we talk about this on the show all the time. Policies make a difference. It doesn't happen overnight. But you referenced the Inflation Reduction Act, and I'm hearing good things coming out of that. And this is obviously one of them. Will Cotta joining us on our live line today. He is the supply chain manager for Mayflower Wind, mayflowerwind.com for more information. We're talking about developing offshore wind energy off the coast of Massachusetts. And this could spread all over. Good stuff. T.J. Dick will be joining us on behalf of the operating engineers out of Omaha, Nebraska, later in the show. Once again, you're listening to America's Workforce. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.org. The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective Democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll-free at 1-800-443-3752. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to Rhode Island right now and rejoin Will Cotta. Will actually works for Ocean Winds, and this is part of the Mayflower Wind Project that's being developed off the coast of Massachusetts. We're talking a 1,200-megawatt South Coast project, south coast of Massachusetts. And I referenced earlier in the show about this memorandum of understanding, which is really powerful. 
And this is uh, between North America's building trade unions and the United Brotherhood of Carpenters. And if you're just joining us right now, there's a lot of unions involved in the uh, wind industry, including our presenting sponsor, Labor's International. you got the iron workers, electrical workers, operating engineers, and I just referenced the carpenters. Will, if you don't mind, I want to get into this because when you're building a project like this, <laughs> let's be honest, you have to have the best workforce in the world. I mean, we are we are going into the future here. We don't want this done by fly-by-night people. We got to have a truly skilled workforce. And I guess that uh, memorandum of understanding pretty much uh, dictates this. Can you... Uh, can you be specific on on the requirements there? So I think maybe maybe starting with as kind of right we're an employer so we look at we look at the building trades and as an employer you look at the building trades and what do you see? And there's two things that kind of stand out to me. One, there's a skilled workforce and there's the existing training infrastructure within that workforce that can continue to supply a sustainable workforce but also adapt and adapt at a national level. So if one of our competitors does something, bring some new technology in, that's going to be distributed throughout all of the different locals um, with the, the state and the national taking the leadership to kind of um, move that forward. The other thing is safety. Um, we, our CEO says, as safety is our license to operate. If people get hurt on our project, that's just going to shut us down. And so um, when you're talking about 1,200 megawatts of power, that's enough to power, you know, one to two million homes. That's a lot of energy. And we have one cable that's carrying all that. You can imagine hooking up that cable is a very, very dangerous operation. And we need the workforce that can do it safely. Um, because as I said, it's our license to operate. So let's get back to this uh, memorandum of understanding. Uh, as far as a diverse workforce, does it pretty much spell out um, who's going to be working on these projects? Do you have any details on that at this stage? So as far as diversity, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing within the, um, within the MOU that, that we worked with, with NAV to, to, to sign is Massachusetts has requirements for engaging diverse, um, historically underrepresented populations. And NAV2 basically said, yes, we are, we are going to incorporate that in. And so we have those diversity requirements of, of how we're going to move forward with that. One big piece of that, I think, is the pre-apprenticeship programs, the building pathways, the building futures. Um, those programs provide really an entry point and have done a great job of diversifying the workforce. The other piece of it within the MOU is that local piece of really bringing in local workers. And so we're not actually the first project to be constructed. So it provides kind of a scaled up mechanism of how local um, and how domestic the workforce is going to be based on the experience of our competitors. So if our competitors go out, they train 100, 200 people to do this work, then we can go in and tap into that workforce, and we don't have to use as many um, foreign workers. I think for the first projects you see, there will be more foreign workers just to help bring people up to speed. Um, and from there, you'll see it really shift. And so for our project being later on, we expect to see um, you know, a significantly more domestic workforce. I see. What's what's the count on jobs right now? I mean, I mentioned a lot of unions that are involved right now, and uh, I'm just wondering, get some clarity here on, on how many really, really skilled jobs we're, we're talking about at this stage, because I can only see growth from this point on. Do we have a number on that, Will? Yeah, so for construction, you're probably looking at like three to 5,000 
FTE years, right? So that's the, the typical um, metric we use. Um, and so it depends on where you look at, at the, the construction. So we kind of have, we break the project up into different packages. So you have the actual turbine construction installation. There's only going to be a few people offshore just because they have to stay on a vessel for two weeks at a time. Um, you're not going to be rotating in and out. And so there's maybe 70 beds on the boat and then two crews, so 35, um, if, yeah, 70 beds for um, construction workers, and so 35 people working at a time. Whereas onshore, there's going to be a whole team there of, you know, 100 or so people to help feed that offshore work. We're also going to be building a lot of transmission infrastructure, laying cables, and building an onshore HVDC converter station. Um, so that's a lot. That's where you'll see broader engagement. But the core unions that will make it up is really that the labor, the um, operating engineer, the iron worker, the electrician, and, and then the carpenter. And then once you see more of the onshore work, that's where it'll be a, a broader set of um, unions as you kind of do more of traditional onshore building. Will, what about timeline? I mean, where, what, what, what kind of time are we looking for this to be completed? So that really rests on our permitting. Um, and right now, our permitting is scheduled to be um, complete in maybe December of 2023. So within the current administration, which is uh, which is good. Um, and I think we'll see the current administration move forward to get a lot of these projects out the door. Once you have permitting in hand, then you can go out and finance the project that takes six months and then construction starts from there. So 2025 is really when we'll ramp up construction. Um, some of our competitors are building now. And I think that's where for the building trades, when you look at it, if you get into this line of work, there's that sustainable job that's going to be there for you. Um, if you like going offshore, if you like climbing, you know, 300 feet in the air, which iron workers I know love to do um, and good for them. That's not my, not my thing. Um, but yeah, so it, it's that sustainable job for them. Um, but there's also opportunities in the onshore work as well, doing all that pre-assembly. Yeah. I'm laughing here. We we record the show at Ironworkers Local 17 in uh, downtown Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, to your point, yeah, they're, they're a different bunch. They're a different bunch. They like to climb those buildings, but uh, they get paid well. Safety is number one, number one. They talk about it all the time. And uh, they're so skilled, and that's what you need on a project like this. So we're talking from some of the, the information you just laid on me here, construction probably not for a couple of years, once they get construction going, um, how long will it take before they get this done? And when, when when will we see those homes being powered? You mentioned one to two million homes off the coast of Massachusetts getting power. When do you see yeah, that so, date ha- happening? So 2027 is when we first start bringing on power. 2028 is when the when the full wind farm is, is on board. And that's for our first project, our, our lease area. So you lease a portion of the seabed, I think we have 127,000 acres of, of the ocean that we have leased out. We have a second project of equivalent size that we'll then go out and construct. So this one will be delivered in, yeah, 2028, and then we'll have another one that hopefully will be um, a few years after that as well. And so once again, that nice, sustainable um, construction jobs, which is, is something that the industry really likes, uh, yeah. which good for us and it's good for the the building trades now the second project is it in the same area you're just building onto it or is that a different place so it's it's, yeah basically we have like one contiguous lease area um and so it's the first half goes to massachusetts the second half goes to 
whoever wants to buy it. So that's where going back to those kind of core things you need to build a project. We'll have the permitting all done within the current administration, um, but the we don't yet have the agreement of who or the customer who, who we're going to sell the power to. Well, all I can say, this is pretty exciting. I mean, the the future is happening right now, especially off the coast of Massachusetts. And it's it's too bad we got to deal with that permitting process. But but I guess it, it's it's happening a little quicker now. What do you know about that? So I think, I mean, the current administration is really pushing forward and really moving this forward. And, and they're following all the rules. They're, um, you know, making sure that they're engaging the states at all the different stakeholders. But they're really pushing this forward. And I think when you talk about being a pro-labor administration, to me, that's something that stands out is, is actually um, pushing the permitting forward to get these jobs actually moving. I love it. Will Cotta, on behalf of OceanWinds.com, this is part of the Mayflower Wind Project off the coast of Massachusetts. You can find more at MayflowerWind.com, and Will works for OceanWinds.com. A lot of wind here. A lot of wind. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Will, so much for joining us. Let's, uh, Let's do this again next year, and I'm sure you'll have more to talk about. Exciting project. You're in the middle of it. Will serves as the supply chain manager for for Ocean Wind. So you take care, stay safe, and stay in touch. Okay, brother? Sounds good. Thank you. All right. TJ Dick is with the operating engineers. He serves as a business manager. That's a local 541 out of Omaha, Nebraska, and he's coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's go just outside Omaha, Nebraska right now, and joining us on line number two is Mr. T.J. Dick, 
who serves as business agent, vice president, and organizing director for the operating engineers. That would be local uh, 571. And right now they're sitting on about 800 members. TJ Dick, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, brother? Good. How are you? Good, 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 good. How's the weather in uh, in the middle of America there? <laughs> well, we're going to have snow today. So that's <laughs> one of the things with Nebraska, we get all the different seasons. Yeah. So we all we're, here. We record the show at Ironworkers Local 17 in Cleveland, Ohio. In fact, I'm sitting across the business manager, Mr. Rich Jordan, right now. And uh, we get the same kind of weather. And uh, we're we're talking a tough bunch here, and I'm sure there's a tough bunch over there as well. You started out uh, in the, uh, what was it, back in 95 when you just got out of high school? Is that the story? Yeah, I was 18 years old right out of high school. Um, really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Um, didn't really make any plans towards the future, but luckily my dad, grandpa, uncles, cousins were all in operating engineers, and I was able to uh, to join the apprenticeship. And actually started in local 234 in Iowa. Uh, went through the apprenticeship there, lived in Nebraska, and then ended up transferring later on. But uh, that's one of the things that I teach the, the kids. I, I teach a unionism class for all the apprentices and, and new people that we bring in on permit. You know, I, I was pretty lucky. I was born into a you know family of all operating engineers. Like now I have little brothers and nephews all in it um, that I had that, you know, so I'm always proud. And it, it makes me feel good to see the guys that on their own, you know, figured out that, hey, this is where we want to be. And um, we've done a lot of work as far as going to career fairs, to high schools, to middle schools, to, to a lot of different places, trying to get the word out about the unions and pensions and, you know, employer paid benefits and all that stuff. So it's kind of cool. That's that's my story with it, you know, just kind of falling into it, being lucky, like I said, just born into a family, you know. And, and with that said, too, you know, I could have just gone off and, and bare minimum and, and all that other, but I really wanted to, you know, get into it you know i didn't want to be the one where what about jerry den mike ed earl you know what happened to tj <laughs> you know, like the, the one that, that really didn't do much because my whole family's been very successful from stewards to you know foremans to you know i, I watched my dad do everything from operate cranes to run excavators to run an elevator at times you know whatever he had to do to, to keep working and that's one thing he told me um he needed to be able to do it all yeah, there you go. And you do it all. The operating engineers do it all. Well, TJ, I know one of your roles is organizing director. You mentioned you got 800 members right now. Is that up, down? Is that uh, And what's the future look like for organizing in Omaha, Nebraska? Um, it's up. Um, like I said, I started seven years ago and started out as an organizer. Um, that was my sole job um, to do that. Um, you know, like, a, well, we have a stationary site also that we uh, represent people from crime scene investigators to maintenance workers, the police department, sheriff's department. So there's a lot of internal organizing on that side of it. You know, they, they hire who they hire. And then we got to go in and explain to them why it's better to be union and, and pay dues than, uh, than not, you know, in a right to work state, that's pretty hard. You know, mm-hmm. you get some of these people that think that, uh, you know, they don't have to pay dues and pay their fair share and they're going to get the same representation and same everything as a, as a dues paying member. So we do a lot of that. Um, with the organizing, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work with um, different contractors here trying to show them that, that we, uh, we work with them. You know, it, it doesn't help us to, you know, of course, the line in the sand is a contract and we're all going to follow the contract. But, you know, at the end of the day, the better they do, the better we do. Um, it's a, it, you know, with right to work here in Nebraska, it's a hard state to, to organize in. You know, there's a lot of 
very big non-union contractors that have been around for a very long time. Um, there was some stuff that happened, you know, back in the, the 90s that, that I don't agree with, with how local 571 was ran, and we lost some pretty big contractors at that point. Um, you know, in 2007, we lost another big, well, the biggest dirt contractor. Um, so kind of for me, you know, the, the best success is revenge. <laughs> or the best, I, I should say the best revenge is success. You know, to where me, like some of them contractors that we've lost, you know, I like to see, you know, our, our training site growing, um, the, the membership growing, the, the amount of contractors that we're being able to bring in. I mean, it's it's to the point now, within the last couple of years, you know, with, with the different hats that I wear, that I don't have enough time to go out and spend every day on organizing. We have contractors calling, um, wanting to join and wanting to sit down and talk about what we have to offer. And I feel like that's you know, years and years of planting seeds. And then here in Nebraska, the word of mouth travels fast. You know, they understand that, that, like I said, we're here to work with them. It's hard enough for them to compete against these non-union contractors that aren't paying, you know, good benefits and, and, and all that to where they're able to undercut some of these jobs and, and take them away, you know, and some of that too is going out along with that internal organizing, um, going and talking to these guys that are working for these non-union contractors and getting them to realize you know, how far short they're selling themselves and what they're actually not getting, you know, as far as benefits and pay-wise and all that stuff being non-union. So there's a lot of opportunity for organizing. We try to work at it as much as we can. We've been, well, we've been having record year after record year here. Um, so I'm trying to keep up with that and keep all that stuff manned. has been pretty tough, but we, we do it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad to do it. Well, you you've been at it for a long time. You wear many hats, and you got to keep moving forward. You you mentioned the benefits. If you don't mind, uh-huh. I'd like to talk about that briefly. And in fact, I mentioned a lot of people don't understand the difference between a defined benefit plan and a defined contribution. A contribution plan would be like a four hundred one k. Do you find that difficult, especially the younger folk? Do they, do they do they grasp the reality of the difference there? You know, I think um, one thing I've learned after doing this for so long, you know, um, some people just aren't going to get it. Some people aren't going to want to listen to you, especially like you mentioned, the younger people. And I was kind of there, too, when I started out at 18. Didn't really care that much about the benefits. Didn't really care about the retirement. You know, now being 10 years away from being able to retire, I'm so thankful that, that for one, that I have it, and two, that it was taken care of for me, you know. Right. Um, at hour one you know, 18 years old, right out of high school, that money was being paid in there for me. And I know for me, and this is why I teach in this class too, is that, you know, if it was my responsibility to take care of that and put money away for my retirement or even for insurance for that matter, being younger, I wouldn't have done it. Oh, I'll double up next month or I'll get real serious about it next year and I'll do that. So I'm so thankful that it, that it was taken care of for me, you know, and, and we go to these schools and we talk at these career fairs and it, it's kind of funny to me because I feel like big business and government have, you know, over the years, you know, long time, have kind of brainwashed people into thinking that they need to self-fund their own retirement. And so, you know, that's taking money out of your paycheck to put towards your insurance, towards your retirement. And I always say, you know, with the defined pension benefit, you can't, you can't do any better than that. We have contractors that, that have signed owner-operator agreements, you know, very successful contractors that realize they can buy into our insurance plan, which is a great insurance plan. You know, we get into deductibles and max out of pockets and all that stuff. Um, it's hard to beat our insurance, but then even with that pension, like you said, I have an uncle that's been retired since 1999. And he's like, I get out, he goes, I get that money whether I get out of bed or not. And if he lives another 20 years, 
he'll get it. You know, <laughs> something that happened. Right. My dad found out that he had uh, he was working on a pipeline in West Virginia. Found out that um, he what came home for Christmas. Found out the day after Christmas that he had cancer and was gone five weeks later. You know, and then my mom was able to live off his pension for nine years. You know, until she passed. So that's one of those things. Um, you know, I kind of uh, try to t- explain to these kids. I think. You know, it's pretty common knowledge. I, I think they know of what a 401k is, and they understand that. But when you break it down, and I've kind of got an analogy that I go through, you know, as far as, you know, you could make more on the check being non-union, but then as you start taking that money away, putting it towards, in my opinion, a second-rate insurance plan, you know, you may have a $6,000 annual deductible. And with that 401k, it's not as good as a defined pension benefit. Now you get second-rate retirement, you know, and I do this – Kind of analogy too, where we talk about that 401k. At the end of it, it's just a big ball of money. You know, I know yeah. when I graduated high school, uh, my teachers told our class that we'd have to have a million dollars in our 401k to retire to retire comfortably. And that's just comfortably. That's not, you know, traveling and doing everything else. You know, and, and kind of how it started out for me. You know, in '95, the wages have kind of doubled. You know, so if I have a million dollars, you know, let's say when I was 65 in 20 years the wages might double from where they're at now. So if I was going to pay myself a hundred thousand dollars a year and not even make it 10 years off that million dollars, because every time you take money out of that, you're going to get hammered with it. Um, I'd be about nine years into it paying myself, which what would be today about $50,000 a year. And then that money's gone, you know, mm-hmm. and then what am I going to go back to work? Right. Am I going to sell everything I worked my whole life to, to accumulate off just to survive or, or mooch off my kids? It's a big deal. And we try to, as much as we can, get that word out there. We have people that we've brought on that, you know, are in their 50s. And even the guy that's in his 60s, you know, he says he's got five more years to, to work. And he knows, you know, he might as well, it takes him five years to get vested. He might as well go ahead and spend those last five years getting a pension. And we have people that say, boy, I wish I knew about this a long time ago. I wish I would have known about it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, exactly. 30 years ago. I hear you. T.J. Dick joining us on our live line today. He is the uh, business agent, vice president, organizing director for the International Union of Operating Engineers. That would be Local 571. Website, by the way, is iuoe571.org. T.J., take care. Keep spreading that message about those uh, benefits. All right, brother? For sure. For sure. Thank you. You got it. That's it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to check in with the Alliance for American Manufacturing and Ironworkers Local 46. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.